This is hell. Greetings, listeners. Coming to you from Second Story Studios above Carrie's Lounge at 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, it's Wednesday, August 9th. I am Will Ippen, producer on This Is Hell, filling in again for Chuck Mertz. This will be my last fill-in episode of this two-week stint. That's right. By the time you listen to us on Monday, August 14th, Chuck Mertz will be back on the other side of the glass opposite Kat Jarvanen. I'm sure he will fill Cat and the rest of us in on what I hope was a restorative and accident-free trip in northern Michigan's lake country. I've heard very few updates from out there, so I trust that everything is vibing as planned. We look forward to your return, Chuck. And I'm sure the listeners look forward to hearing more of your voice and less of mine. If Chuck's on-air report on his trip isn't enough for you on Monday, August 14th, you can welcome him back in person at the next office hours this coming Wednesday, August 16th at Carrie's Lounge at 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago. Office hours runs from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. And when you come to office hours, be sure to check out the art show right here in Second Story Studios above Carrie's. This is Art features a wide range of art for your perusal and maybe even purchase. Neither This Is Hell nor Carrie's take a cut from This Is Art's sales. That's right, 100% of the proceeds go to the artists. I think that's pretty great. Come by and check everyone's creations out. Maybe even bring one home for yourself. Today wraps up our deep dive 
into our archive of interviews with prolific historian and listener favorite Gerald Horn, recorded right here on This Is Hell between 2018 and 2023. For those of you who aren't familiar with Horn, he's a pretty big deal in the discipline of history, especially in the historiography of race, racial capitalism, radical historiography. He truly has a mastery of a wide range of fields that's rare to see in a single scholar. He is the Moores Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston, and he's written over 30 books and 100 scholarly articles on issues of racism in a variety of relations involving labor, politics, civil rights, international relations, and war. He also won the Franz Fanon Lifetime Achievement Award from the Caribbean Philosophical Association. If you'd like to learn more about Horn, I highly encourage you to listen to the first five episodes in this series. If you haven't heard these, here's a brief rundown of what we've covered so far. Our Monday, July 31st episode featured an interview with Horn about his 2018 study published by Monthly Review Press titled The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Capitalism in 17th Century North America and the Caribbean. The second installment, recorded on Tuesday, August 1st, features a 2019 interview on Horn's book published that same year by international publishers titled White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela. The third installment, recorded on Wednesday, August 2nd, features an interview with Horn discussing his findings and insights in his 2021 American Book Award winner, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century, published by Monthly Review Press. This serves as a sort of prequel to the first interview featured in the series. This week, on Monday, August 7th, we turned to sports history and its intersection with race in Horn's 2020 work from international publishers titled The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. The fifth installment, recorded yesterday, Tuesday, August 8th, featured his discussion with Chuck about the long reach of America's so-called peculiar institution, that is, racialized chattel slavery, as well as Jim Crow in the Slaveholders' Republic of Texas. Our fifth episode in this deep dive recorded yesterday Tuesday, August 8th, returns to the long reach of America's so-called peculiar institution, 
that is racialized chattel slavery, as seen through the history of the Slaveholders' Republic in Texas in Horn's 2022 book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of U.S. Fascism from International Publishers. Today's interview wraps up our six-episode deep dive into the Horn interviews. This one discusses his most recent book from International Publishers, published this year, titled Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 through 2000. Coming up after the interview, I will reveal your remaining answers to the question from hell and i've been very impressed with the vulnerability and public accountability on display at least in the little public we've created for ourselves here in hell the answer to the or the question from hell this week is what do you dislike most about yourself but before that we have a classic moment of truth from longtime correspondent jeff dorchin who reflects back five years ago when nostalgia was once again making another comeback. Without further delay, let's turn to our July 10th, 2023 conversation with Gerald Horn, where he filled Chuck in on the findings of his newest book, Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 through 2000. I'll catch you on the other side. This is hell. This is hell. And the great fortunes that have been made by the United States have been built not only on genocide and slavery, but also on exploitation and inequality that are uniquely American. Here to help us understand how that all played out in the capital of the United States, the very first chocolate city, we are very happy to have back on the show. Historian Gerald Horn, author of Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000. Welcome back to This is Hell, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. It's always great to have you on the show, and it's always great to hear your voice. How are you doing? Oh, you know, it could be worse. <laughs> That's the best way to describe everything, I think. You write that in Washington, D.C. in 1919, Carter G. Woodson, dubbed as the father of black history, thought he was about to make history in the worst way. He was near Howard University, the historically black institution within walking distance of the White House. And then there, then, uh, there sped by him, he recalled, a Negro yelling for mercy as he was pursued by hundreds of white soldiers, sailors, and mariners, mariners uh, assisted by men in civilian attire. They collared the young man, then deliberately held him as one would a beef for slaughter. Then they shot him. The stunned historian scurried away furtively, as fast as I could without running, is how he put it, while expecting every moment to be lynched myself. All academics did not react in Dr. Woodson's manner. A uh, Howard professor, described as militant, built a barricade festooned with guns. He and his comrades then engaged in watchful waiting. As one writer put it, the professor, using a rowdy principle, had opened up a new and decent area for Negro habitation. Thousands of fine Negroes live there now, 
as reform emerged from the barrel of a gun. At that time, what sparked that moment of violence? Were these completely random acts, or was racism always seething under the surface in Washington, D.C., and waiting for an excuse to unleash deadly racist violence? It was more the latter. The immediate trigger were inflammatory reports in the Washington Post, then as now the leading publication in the nation's capital that suggested that uh, Black men were manhandling and roughhousing Euro-American women. And that was taking place against the backdrop of World War I, where the United States had been forced, as ever, to conscript Black men to go abroad to fight, fight purportedly for freedoms they did not enjoy. They came back, some of them trained in weapons, and unwilling to accept the racist status quo. Uh, that vignette involving Carter G. Whitson is the immediate paragraph that starts this book, Revolting Capital, which talks about uh, how Washington has been faced with this contradiction. That is to say, at the same time that the United States was purporting to be the paragon of human rights virtue, you saw that Washington, as your opening word suggested, could fairly be characterized as chocolate city. How was it that the capital of a white supremacist state came to have a black majority? In order to understand that, you have to understand slavery ending in the United States in 1865. Keep in mind that during the bad old days of slavery, Washington, D.C., rivaled New Orleans as a slave trading market. That too cast a blemish on the reputation of the United States during the antebellum period. But the issue that I focus on heavily in the book at hand is the fact that when African and Caribbean nations began to surge to independence post-1945, post-World War II, uh, Washington found itself in a contradiction as it was seeking to appeal to diplomats from these nations who, when arriving in Washington, oftentimes were treated like U.S. Negroes. A so-called reform was uh, devised whereby these diplomats would be given buttons to wear on their lapels to show that even though they were Black, they were not Black Americans. But obviously that did not fly, not least because uh, Black Americans could counterfeit these buttons. And so this creates a dynamic where Washington has to engage in a halting retreat from the more horrible aspects of Jim Crow. But at the same time, Jim Crow, of course, being U.S. apartheid, U.S. Uh, racism by law. But obviously, this was disconcerting and angering to many who had grown comfortable and accustomed to U.S. Jim Crow, U.S. apartheid which creates even more problems. And then there's the other issue, which I talk about in, in, in the introduction. Uh, Washington is probably the most heavily surveilled city in the United States, if not on planet Earth. Not only do you have the Metropolitan Police, you have police departments across the river in Virginia, across the border in Maryland, you have Secret Service, you have FBI, the Federal Reserve has been authorized to have its own police department. You have park police, et cetera. And as a footnote that makes it all the more curious, what happened on January 6, 2021, when apparently flying under the radar were insurrectionists who were seeking to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. 
And as many commentators suggested then and now, uh, if that had been black people uh, seeking to prevent the peaceful transfer of power, well, first of all, it would have never happened. And second of all, there would have been uh, blood in the streets, uh, certainly more than you saw on January 6, 2021. And that brings me to the other aspect of Washington being the nation's capital. That is to say, I recount episodes where anti-war demonstrators clogged the streets of Washington, preventing Pentagon chiefs from motoring to the White House to devise bombing campaigns against Indochina and against Vietnam uh, some decades ago during the height of the war in Vietnam. And so Washington is not just another U.S. city. It's a pivotal city, not least because it is where power is exercised. And also it has a intermittent black majority, which makes the rampages of gentrification in Washington, which is now unfolding, in some ways a national security question. Yeah, we had a really great discussion with uh, Tom Frank, Thomas Frank, about that when his book uh, Wrecking Crew came out uh, several years ago. And that's fascinating. The uh, twenty, the late uh, 20th century, early 21st century history of gentrification in uh, Washington, D.C., which you touch on as well. But symbolically, when there was this kind of resistance, even armed resistance to white violence in Washington, D.C., did this mean for the greater United States uh, when there's this, you know, when black Americans in the nation's capital were standing up against white violence with violence of their own, did that lead to blowback nationally? Did that kind of moment in history make the rest of the United States, you know, we, we know about what happened in Tulsa. We know about what happened in the early 20th century with so many attacks on uh, economically and financially successful uh, black communities. So did this have a link to, did the uh, violence, the anti, or the, the violence against the white violence, did that have any impact on the United States nationally? Did that lead to more of a blowback against African-Americans across the country? Well, it's a mixed bag. First of all, let's look at the question of gun control. Uh, given the fact that gun control is basically a dead letter, despite all of these massacres that take place, for example, in Buffalo, New York, Uvalde, Texas, et cetera, you had bipartisan effort towards gun control in the late 1960s, not least because you had the arising of the Black Panther Party started uh, in a sense in Oakland, California, but of course having a militant chapter in Washington, DC, uh, part of their mantra was confronting the police oftentimes with arms in hand. Uh, you may recall that it was on May 2nd, 1967, that the newly formed Black Panther Party invaded the state capital in Sacramento, California. And that too led to gun control efforts, indeed led by then California Governor Ronald Wilson Reagan, who then subsequently became a staunch opponent of gun control. So I would say that on the one hand, the fact that you had these black people arming was seen as a cautionary note by many of the rulers of the United States, perhaps making some more prone to push reform, not only with regard to uh, gun control, but with regard to other measures. For example, that's the heyday of affirmative action uh, recently given its death blow by the US Supreme Court just a few days ago. 
At the same time, there are Panthers still in prison to this very day as a result of their armed confrontation with the state. Uh, there are Panthers buried in graveyards too numerous to mention, not only Panthers, but Panther supporters because of their armed confrontation with the state. So uh, in some, I would say it's a mixed bag. So let me get back to that just for a second. So how necessary and important was violence in the early days of Washington, D.C.'s struggle for black liberation? How important was it to have a violent reaction in order to continue any project for black liberation? I would say it's one factor amongst many. I would say the leading factor in helping to explicate the agonizing retreat from the more hard aspects of Jim Crow is the international situation, what I just mentioned with reference to uh, having to appeal to African and Caribbean diplomats in a Cold War context with the then Soviet Union and the United States feeling it would be disadvantaged as a result. That sets the stage. Because keep in mind that if an alien arrives from outer space and studies the history of the United States, that alien may look back at the bloodstained history of the United States. Uh, for example, peaceful protesters being mowed down in the streets like they're some sort of wild animals in the first part of the 20th century. And then you have the March on Washington of 1963 when 250,000 uh, amass uh, peacefully, uh, which leads directly to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 which supposedly was designed, among other things, to make sure that Black patrons could visit restaurants and hotels. Now, in light of the recent Supreme Court decision, once again, out of Colorado, where a web designer is not obligated to accept the business of a gay couple, uh, lawyers, including myself, have raised the possibility that on that premise, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, or at least that portion I just rendered, could be ruled unconstitutional. Now, I think that that's a stretch, but uh, who knows, given the nature of this U.S. Supreme Court. So I, I would say in sum that violence is a factor, but I think it would be reductionist to say it's the sole and exclusive factor in explaining reform. And you mentioned that speaking from Kansas City, John Bruce found the real cause of these outbreaks in early 20th century Washington, D.C. was the unusually large number of Negroes in public office. In a city that would deliver a black majority shortly, these well-dressed, well-housed, educated Negroes were frequently seen in automobiles on Pennsylvania Avenue, a central artery, and some there was a peculiar mixture of racism and class resentment with Dr. Woodson as an ostensible target. Is... You know, there's always this binary of race or class, and I know that every binary has a shortcoming. Is a class war then a race war in the United States and vice versa? And are both white-based class and race violence resentment against democracy? Are these fights against democracy and possibly even in support of authoritarianism, dictatorship, or even fascism? Well, I think you're onto something. In fact, as you know more than most, that was the import of the book we discussed on This Is Held about a year ago, on my book on Texas slavery and Jim Crow and the roots of US fascism. The only footnote that I would add is that I think that there has been a mischaracterization 
with regard to what has been called the race question, at least as it pertains to African-Americans, because slavery was the ultimate class question. That is to say, you have a class of unpaid workers. And I think that part of the mistake that has been made even by radicals in this country is a failure to acknowledge that fundamental point, which then leads them to misunderstand why there have been fissures in the working class as a whole. The fissures have been characterized as race fissures. That is to say, why is it that uh, poor coal miners in Kentucky oftentimes do not want to join hands with the uh, black proletarians in Chicago? But it actually, in a sense, goes back to the 19th century when there was a difficulty in workers who receive wages joining hands with workers who did not receive wages. What that also suggests is that when the workers who did not receive wages were able to break the chains, break the shackles of slavery happening in Haiti, circa 1804 in the United States, 1865, this uplifts the working class as a whole. And that is a point of history that I would hope our radicals and even liberals could begin to focus on. You mentioned a businessman named George Calavitinos, who uh, was speaking to Congress, and he told them that he exhorted that since 1776, the nation had never been faced with a more critical situation as we are confronted with today. This is in 1960s Washington, D.C. Born in the District of Columbia in 1921, he acknowledged freely that what I am called is a slumlord, and presumably from his tenants, he learned that planned guerrilla warfare is now in our land, with key activists following the same tactics as Fidel Castro. In fact, he claimed many of these punks were taught by the Cuban leader, his temper flaring, he challenged the many who say dictatorship is not the answer. Well, he clucked, I say we could use some now. According to Nile University, an Egyptian research and entrepreneurial school, fascism is a mass political movement that emphasizes extreme nationalism and militarism, while dictatorship is a form of government where the leader of the country possesses absolute power. Is the goal then of white supremacists and those who oppose black liberation dictatorship, as those businessman Calavitinos suggested? Or do, do you think it is fascism, as so many critics on the left have claimed? And does it make a difference? It probably doesn't make a difference, particularly to the ultimate victims, who I would characterize as being black people or those who may be sympathetic to black people. And I add the latter because recall that in my Texas book, I point out that also subject to being pulverized in Texas post-abolition of slavery were those Euro-Americans who were seen as overly sympathetic to Black people. In fact, if you look at the cover of my book, it's a picture of a mass hanging of white men uh, who were perceived as overly sympathetic uh, to uh, the newly uh, freed uh, enslaved. Now, I should also add that if you look at the New York Times today, there's an op-ed actually by University of Chicago law professor Sonia Starr, who says that the next stage for the right wing after overthrowing affirmative action is to get rid of diversity, irrespective of whether or not their qualifications. That is to say, uh, even if um, you have a uh, prize-winning black astrophysicist who wants to apply to the University of Chicago, 
but uh, he could be turned down. In other words, it would be a great leap backwards to the bad old days of Jim Crow, which meant no matter how qualified, quote unquote, you were, uh, you could be turned down. And of course, there was an attempt to keep you from being qualified by making sure you went to inferior uh, schools. Washington, D.C. has been an exemplar of this trend that I'm talking about, because keep in mind that Washington, D.C. was formed as a compromise with the slave-owning states. Recall that George Washington, after he was elected, uh, he was ruling from Philadelphia, he was ruling from New York, and finally the slave-owning leaders wanted a capital that was in their jurisdiction. So Washington, D.C. borders Virginia, the premier slave-owning state, and it also borders Maryland, which also was a slave-owning state. And during the 20th century, as I've described in the book, Washington, D.C. was weighed down not only by the kinds of elites that you just described in that quote, but look at the football team. Sports oftentimes is a useful prism through which to view and analyze U.S. society. Note that until a year or two ago, the Washington football team, well, I'm reluctant to mention the word, but for educational purposes, I will. It was the Washington Redskins, which, of course, is a uh, disgusting nickname for a professional team. For a good deal of its history, the Washington so-called Redskins were owned by George Preston Marshall, who was one of the last pro football franchise owners to move towards desegregation, that is to say, accepting black football players in a league which is now about 70% black. So obviously uh, he was consigning his team to not doing well on the gridiron, which obviously, once again, it helps to contradict some of our friends over at the University of Chicago who suggest that the lure of the dollar and the lure of profit and the desire to have a number one football team whereby you would make more money uh, would not make this effort towards segregation by George Preston Marshall possible. But obviously, he, he put certain values above the value of making money. This was happening in the nation's capital, the nation's front yard, at a time when Washington was preening on the global stage as the paragon of human rights liberty. Obviously, something had to give, and eventually something did give. That is to say, the agonizing and reluctant retreat from the more horrible aspects of U.S. apartheid. And we were very honored to have Vernon Belcourt on our show of the American Indian Movement, who was part of the campaign, or the leader of the campaign, to get rid of the racist names that we did find in uh, with sports teams. So earlier you likened the U.S. Insti uh, American institutions to those of... Apartheid, uh, but apartheid is a system. I'm, I'm sure that people are going to be, you know, people who may have stumbled on the show or whatever. Uh, they will be probably saying apartheid is a system of minority rule. So how can apartheid exist in a country where the population overall is not that of a white minority? Is apartheid in the U.S. localized in its urban centers? Well, recall our discussion a few years ago when I was discussing on these airwaves my book, White Supremacy Confronted, which has a detailed analysis of apartheid in South Africa. Recall that when apartheid was enacted in 1948, it was enacted in no small measure in order to protect the so-called white working class from competition from the black working class. 
It was designed to uplift the former as it drove the latter into the dust. If you look at this recent decision by the U.S. Supreme Court gutting affirmative action amongst others, fundamentally, you can expect that decision to migrate to the workplace. And that will serve to reinforce racial privilege, white racial privilege in the first place, uh, giving white applicants a leg up in terms of any competition with uh, non-white applicants, which is one of the reasons I suspect the decision has been so popular in diverse circles. Likewise, I don't think you can understand U.S. Jim Crow nor South African apartheid without understanding the concept of white supremacy, of which white racial privilege is just an aspect. Indeed, what I argued in that earlier book was that in some ways, the United States outstripped apartheid South Africa because in apartheid South Africa, which was a regime that touted white supremacy, that was really a cover for Afrikaner supremacy. Afrikaners being the descendants of the original Dutch settlers with an infusion of French Protestantism in the late uh, 17th century. They were heavily anti-Semitic. In the United States, there has been much more of a synthetic version of whiteness. To be sure, there is anti-Jewish fervor in the United States, but I think it's also fair to say, as the governor of Illinois could well attest, that uh, the United States has gone the extra mile in combating uh, anti-Semitism, unlike uh, apartheid South Africa, which is one of the reasons why the regime began to crumble. Because it turns out that many of the leaders of the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa happened to be Jewish, like Joe Slovo, who was head of the armed wing of Nelson Mandela's African National Congress, for example. So the comparison between South African apartheid and U.S. Jim Crow is entirely opposite. All right. Then you also write, it was in the late 1940s that the celebrated Howard University sociologist E. Franklin Frazier was made aware of the unavoidable as Washington became not only a global but hemispheric capital. The ingrained apartheid policies were out uh, there outraged numerous foreign visitors at, at a time when the U.S. was seeking to win hearts and minds abroad, as you were mentioning earlier. Ethiopians uh, would uh, found it next to impossible to book a room at a white hotel, while one enraged South Asian proclaimed, I would rather be an untouchable in the Hindu caste system than a Negro here. By your assessment, is that hyperbole? How can being black in America be worse than being part of a caste system? Is racism in the U.S. uniquely cruel and brutal? And is it recognized as such around the world? Well, the short answer is that it was recognized in diverse circles around the world as being a particularly hard form of socioeconomic organizing. It's oftentimes difficult to compare horrible aspects of diverse societies, like comparing the system of untouchables in South Asia and the system of Jim Crow in the United States of America. But I will say this, you know that I did a book on Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, which had a system of apartheid not dissimilar from that in South Africa. The white leaders in Rhodesia oftentimes clucked 
their tongues when espying lynching in the United States of America. Lynching is a horrible phenomenon that is something that even the races in Southern Africa uh, found uh, quite uh, befuddling. Uh, that is to say, the execution of black men and women uh, with no due process of law. Uh, there's a particularly hard case about a century ago in Georgia where a pregnant black woman is lynched and then the lynchers uh, carve her womb take out the fetus and stomp the fetus to death. Uh, this sort of horrible excess has been virtually unique to the United States of America, which makes it possible to suggest if there is an Olympics of racism and Olympics of horrors, the United States could well be awarded the gold medal. We are speaking with historian Gerald Horn. His new book is Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000. And we will have an autographed copy of his book as part of our raffle coming up as a prize during our raffle at our This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party happening on Saturday, July 22nd. So you write, eventually, Washington's rulers sought to pivot away from horrendousness, as described by the city's doyen, Mary Church Terrell. She said, Indians, Japanese, Chinese, Filipinos, and representatives of other dark races can find hotel accommodations as a rule if they pay for them. The colored man or woman is the only one thrust out of the hotels of the national capital like a leper. So in a 2016 Smithsonian article, it states that on February 28, 1950, 86-year-old Mary Church Terrell invited her friends, two black, one white, with her at Thompson's, a local cafeteria. The four entered, took their trays, and proceeded down the counter line. The manager told the group that the diner's policy forbade him from serving them. They demanded to know why they couldn't have lunch, and the manager responded that it was not his personal policy, but Thompson Companies, which refused to serve African Americans. The group left as chairwoman of the Coordinating Committee for the Enforcement of the District of Columbia Anti-Discrimination Laws. Terrell was setting up a test case to force the courts to rule on two lost laws that demanded all restaurants and public eating places in Washington serve any well-mannered citizen, regardless of their skin color. Over three drawn-out years, a legal battle followed, which ultimately took their case all the way to the America's highest court. This is five years before Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a Washington or on a Montgomery bus. Ten years before the Woolworth sit-ins in Greensboro. Did actions in Washington D.C. during the very early stages of the civil rights movement not only predate? but influence actions around the United States. And and why do we know about Rosa Parks and Woolworths, but not as much about Terrell? Well, the short answer is yes. What happened on the national stage in Washington uh, did predate and to a certain extent shape and influence subsequent events, not least the demonstrations in Montgomery, Alabama, of which uh, Rosa Parks has become the leading symbol, that is to say the desegregation of buses, of buses. But there is a point that you mentioned earlier that bears reflection. And that goes back to my earlier point where I think that the radicals and certainly the liberals have made a mistake by not looking at slavery 
being at root a class question. Mary Church Terrell in that quote talks about how at a certain point in Washington's evolution, uh, South Asians and Japanese and Chinese could be patronized in hotels and restaurants, but not black Americans. As I said before, Washington was scrambling to make exceptions for Nigerian and Jamaican diplomats and to a certain extent students who were attending Howard University, Howard University on the hilltop in Washington, DC, but not for black Americans. I don't think you can begin to explain this contradiction without understanding something that I thread throughout this book, Revolting Capital which is that when slavery was abolished in 1865 or thereabouts, the slave owners were not compensated. Now we talk about reparations for enslavement today. Evanston, Illinois in your backyard has moved in that direction. There is an, a, a parallel attempt in the state of California. But uh, we rarely discuss uh, to the chagrin and consternation of the descendants of slave owners, the fact that their property in human beings was taken without compensation. This helped to generate enormous uh, cyclonic antagonism and resentment towards black people generally, making it possible to explain the persecution of black people as being a reaction to having your property taken without compensation. Oftentimes when I explain this in classrooms, you know how classrooms nowadays are, uh, students as you're lecturing or fiddling with their smartphones. And I will go up to a student and snatch the smartphone out of their hand and say, this is what I'm talking about. I'm expropriating your property without compensation. You're angry, aren't you? You probably wanna take me outside and give me a good dusting, don't you? Well, that's basically the scenario, not least in Washington, DC, but I would argue throughout Dixie post 1865. It's a problem we still face today. I mean, look at this affirmative action decision. Uh, even though it was portrayed as being solely and exclusively a black program, everybody knows that with regard to affirmative action, non-minority women are probably the most significant beneficiary, but they hardly entered into the discussion because of this fixation, if not obsession, about Black people, which I would argue not only stems from the usual tropes we hear about, this, this revulsion towards darker skin, but also to the class question. You have property taken in the billions without compensation, plunging many families into poverty, generating resentment anger, fury. Is that resentment, anger, and fury also aimed at the military industrial complex? Because you write that the black Washington vicinity was a direct victim of U.S. imperialism, and not only in terms of tax dollars wasted on a failed regime in Tehran or on military spending generally. Queen City was a neighborhood of about 150 black American families founded in the 1880s that was disassembled so that the behemoth known as the Pentagon Citadel of U.S. imperialism could be constructed. I don't think that many people know that that was due to a racial cleansing, if you will, of the uh, Washington, D.C. area. That's why the Pentagon is where it is within the black liberation movement. Historically, how much has the military budget been viewed as a part of some sort of zero-sum game when it comes to resources that might mitigate inequality. That increased military spending means worse living conditions, infrastructure, and greater inequality for black Americans. How much is this viewed as a zero-sum game? 
I'm glad you raised that question because at the end of the month, we'll have the, uh, the meeting of the NAACP, the convention taking place in Boston. In 1950, at the NAACP convention in Boston, you had a systematic purge of any to the left of liberalism. In the first place, that meant people who were sympathetic to the late great Paul Robeson, actor, activist, socialist. Since that time, you've had a de facto political ecosystem in the United States, whereby liberal forces like the leaders of the NAACP refuse to acknowledge allies on the left, whereas their right-wing counterparts refuse to see enemies to their right. That helps to explain not only why there is so much sympathy amongst the leading Republican Party presidential candidates for the insurrectionists of January 6th, but it also sheds light on why there have been so many setbacks for these movements led by liberals. Because, for example, they refuse to make a major issue of the military industrial complex. In fact, the NAACP leaders, uh, by and large, supported the war in Vietnam in the 1960s and 1970s. They're quiet as church mice about the hundreds of US bases, military bases abroad. You have left-wing forces, forces to the left of the NAACP leadership who launched a campaign called Move the Money, whereby they wanna move money from the Pentagon into education and healthcare. The NAACP, once again, has been absent from that fight. But once again, it's not accidental. You can trace it all back to 1950, this NAACP convention in Boston, Massachusetts, once again, at the end of July, 2023, there'll be an NAACP convention in Boston, Massachusetts. Once again, we expect many of our friends to the left of liberal to raise these questions. But sadly, once again, I don't expect in 2023, at least, that they'll gain much traction. So do you think the NAACP then is more of a race project or a class project? Or again, is that binary? Uh, does that have some sort of shortcomings? Well, I think they're both, but I think that they're failing on both fronts. I mean, <laughs> they're a class project insofar as they're oftentimes an alliance with the AFL-CIO, which, by the way, endured a similar purge of those to the left of liberal in the 1950s. The NAACP represents a mostly working class constituency, Black Americans or overwhelmingly and predominantly workers who sell their labor for a wage in order to maintain housing and have food on the table. But it's a race project insofar as, for example, when I was doing research just a few days ago uh, in Boston, and I would walk into, actually this was Cambridge, adjoining Boston, and I would walk into Enterprises, uh, even a bookstore that had a Black Lives Matter sign on the window. And when I walked in, you would think that I was an alien visiting from outer space. And this is you know, Cambridge, liberal town, Black Lives Matter uh, sign in the window. And it's not necessarily because I have gray hair. It's not necessarily because I'm a professor and therefore there's class resentment because they didn't know who I was. It was because of the color of my skin. So to that extent, the NAACP, when they campaign against such excesses and outrages, they're also pursuing a race project. So they're pursuing both, but not pursuing either very well. 
You also mentioned, you were talking about earlier, the impact that national lawmakers have on local policies within Washington, D.C., and you point out that Dixie, Dixie often sent to the district the most hardened white supremacists to the detriment of local residents. Would more democratic control, less influenced by national politicians on D.C.'s metropolitan policies, necessarily mean less of a police state in D.C.? Do national politicians insist they bring their race and class-based police state with them from their home states? Well, it's hard to say at this point. I think it would have made a, a big difference some decades ago when you had the likes of Senator Theodore Bilbo of Mississippi, who was head and shoulders above the rest in terms of uh, spouting and exemplifying white supremacy. Uh, Congress put him in the position of being the de facto mayor because until quite recently, in recent years, have you had the move towards home rule, where Washington could have its own elected mayor? Uh, today, uh, given the fact that Washington has advanced pretty far down the road compared to 1947, for example, when it comes to anti-racism, I'm not sure if having more home rule in Washington is going to have that much of an impact on national politics, although I am wholly in favor of more home rule for Washington, up to and including the current demand in Washington that Washington be a state with two U.S. senators that could tip the balance against the right wing, which is one of the reasons why it's going to be difficult to get that uh, legislation or even constitutional amendment passed. And as well, it could mean that the possibility of more of these right-wing Supreme Court justices like Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh could be confirmed if you had two U.S. senators from the Commonwealth of Douglas or the Douglas Commonwealth, the new D.C., Frederick Douglass, of course, being the man we're referring to, the great 19th century abolitionist who spent his waning years in Washington, D.C. You also mentioned the Red Scare of the post-war era, writing that by 1947, as the Red Scare was heating up and the Communist Party had yet to be weakened profoundly, communists and their allies were in support of a 50-building strike at the heart of power by these workers, which, according to scholar Mary Elizabeth Harding, was possibly the only example of an all-African-American union that supported the refusal of the leadership of the local to sign the non-communist affidavits and remained on strike for over two months until the issue was resolved. And in a, a signal development that pretended the weakening of both unions and the Communist Party, the NAACP declined to become active in the Citizens Support Committee in support of the cafeteria workers who are striking. So some critics are arguing that in the recent Greek elections at the end of last month that ended in a right-wing landslide, that was partly due to the more left-wing party's unwillingness to embrace a stronger class politics. How potent is Red Scare politics to this day, leading liberal and even leftists to not embrace class politics and in doing so, handing elections to those with conservative class politics? Is the opposition to conservatism unwilling to have class politics and giving elections to conservatives in doing so? Well, I think you're onto something, but I think we need to understand this phenomenon. I mean, for example, the NAACP would find it difficult 
to have any sort of conversations or discussions with me, even though in the academic community, uh, even in the wider black community, I'm viewed as a person who can contribute value to political discussions. But it's not only because of their encrusted anti-communism and anti-socialism, it's also because they feel that their donations would dip if they began to consort with those like myself. In other words, yes, you are correct. Uh, Anti-class politics, uh, anti-communism is still a reigning factor in US politics. It helps to explain the ascendancy of the right wing. It helps to shed light on why the 45th US president might very well become the 47th US president in January, 2025 not least because our friends who are liberals oftentimes will be reluctant, to put it mildly, to see allies and friends and comrades to their left, which weakens their overall project. But it has the advantage of making sure that they control the reins of power, because if they were to move away from that cockeyed uh, system that I've just explained, a person like myself might hold the reins of power, and they don't want that to happen. It would not be in their self-interest, narrowly speaking. So is the NAACP's anti-communist stance then one of survival? Would there not be an NAACP if they did not sign the affidavit, sign the affidavit that said that they would not support communism? Well, I think you're onto something. I think there's the dilemma. The, the fact is the NAACP is the longest, the most enduring civil rights organization because it's bent to political winds. It's bit, bent to hurricane force-like winds and currents. But the price that has been paid for that, quote, flexibility, unquote, has been ineptitude, has been ineffectiveness, raising questions as to whether or not the community they were sworn to defend would have been better served if they had pursued a different ideological approach. But there again, you have the problem. If they had pursued a different ideological approach, perhaps they would not be around to hold their convention in Boston at the end of the month. You mentioned the reparations program in Evanston, and I don't want to speak about that specifically, but I wanted to ask you a more general question. Can reparations be means-based. We just had the whole student debt debacle that just happened with a lot of people arguing we cannot have universal student debt, uh, if, you know, uh, allowing for people not to pay back their student debts. We can't have a universal program like that because then rich people are going to take advantage of it. Why should I pay for a millionaire student loan debts? So in the same uh, vein, when it comes to means-based reparations, can there be means-based reparations or do they need to be universal? I think it needs to be universal because I think that the calculation is that if you have means-based, for example, if you had means-based social security, saying that people who have uh, annual incomes over six figures or lo and behold, seven figures should be excluded from social security, that weakens the politics, that weakens the political support. And we always, contrary to popular opinion, have to take into account that the United States has a powerful and potent right-wing force, and you cross that right-wing force or contradict that right-wing force or disregard that right-wing force at your own peril. 
so reparations faces a stiff, a stiff and steep uphill climb as it is, saying that it's going to be means-based and therefore excluding the, you know, the handful of black professors at Northwestern University, for example, would probably be driving a stake through its heart and therefore would be politically unwise. We have been speaking with historian Gerald Horn, whose new book is entitled Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000. You can find all five of our past interviews with Gerald at our website, thisishell.com. When you search on his name, Horn, H-O-R-N-E, and they are all absolutely free. As you know, our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, and I'm going to hate asking this question. You may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Oh, Gerald, I'm going to hate asking this. Is black liberation communist? (laughs) Well, in part, insofar as there have been leading communists in the forefront of the black liberation movement. Uh, You mentioned my biography of Ben Davis. This is the black communist leader as opposed to the Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, He was elected to New York City Council in 1943 re-elected in 1945 before falling victim to the Red Scare circa 1949 and jailed by 1951. So he was a leader of of the black community. Uh, Insofar as black liberation involves class politics, involves the redistribution of wealth per reparations, to that extent, it could be characterized as quote, socialist or communist. But by and large, I think it's an era to slap that label on the black liberation movement because there are many people in the movement who are liberal. There are many people in the movement who are moderate. And in any case, slapping that label on the entire movement is a way to carry favor with the powerful anti-communist forces who mean ill for the black liberation movement in general. Gerald, it is always a distinct pleasure to have a conversation with you. Thank you so much for all of your support. Thank you for coming on our show every year since 2018. We really appreciate it and uh, look forward to having you. Oh, wait, I know you're working on a new book. You're always working on a new book. What's your new book about? Next year, Armed Struggle, question mark, Panthers, Communists, Black Nationalism and Black Liberals in Southern California through the 1960s. So should Governor DeSantis be be working on censoring your book already? I'm sure he is. (laughs) All right. Gerald, it's always great to hear your voice. Thank you so much for being on the air, and uh, we'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Good luck. Take care. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. Welcome back. Because bigots are the true protected class in the United States, this is hell. So based on that conversation, it looks like Washington, D.C. truly was, and in many ways continues to be, a revolting capital indeed. If you appreciate that this is hell shares crucial voices like horns that are increasingly pushed to the margins of the corporate media and discourse, please consider becoming a supporter of the show by subscribing to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thisishell. 
Your subscription keeps the lights on, the servers running, the bills paid, and producers like me and Kat and Dan paid to bring our audience this content absolutely free. Your contribution also entitles you to a discount on all merch available from thisishell.com, early access to the question from hell, the ability to have your very own question for from hell for Chuck answered each week, access to a deep library of hand-picked interviews from our archive, and of course, this is Hell weekly bonus episode on Patreon every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Central Time. All right, listeners, it's that time again. It's Wednesday, after all, which means another moment of truth from Jeff Torchin. And not just any moment of truth, but a classic moment of truth handpicked by Jeff. Jeff reflects back five years ago when nostalgia was once again making another comeback. And while I do not have Jeffy on the line live, I do have him in my trusty Reaper DAW software. So here goes nothing. nostalgia time again welcome to the moment of truth the thirst that is the drink it's nostalgia time on premium cable i mean it's always nostalgia time on premium cable but man muhammad ali got me listening to the motor booty affair this is how in cosell reporting live from the motor booty affair hey remember when muhammad ali the boxer refused to go to vietnam and fight against the north and the vc remember why because it was a racist war. He wasn't getting treated like a human being by the official society here in the USA, and he didn't like that much, so why should he go do the same thing to some strangers on the other side of the world who'd never done him any harm? Remember that? Or something like that? That was when refusing to go to war wasn't easy. You were forced to go to war. If you refused, you went to jail. You lost your championship title. There were consequences. Nowadays, you can't be forced to go to war They just make you so poor you have no choice but to join the army. But it is a choice, isn't it? Remember back when? When the world was sort of different, although since then the cruelties have shifted around from public sector to private sector, from overt coercion to subtle tacit coercion here and there, now and then. Nostalgia is unnecessary. You really just need the proper tools of interpretation, and you are instantly transported from the enlightened present to the benighted past. Watch The Handmaid's Tale and you are back in your worst colonial collective memory. Just by rearranging the emphasis on attention, you can travel back in time while staying in the same place. To colonial times, or to yesterday in Alabama. Nostalgia didn't used to be a dead end, but nostalgia is a dead end. Especially now. We are approaching the future and it looks like crap. Yet we are compelled to think of the past because, eh, it's the only thing we can remember. We are prisoners of our mental deficiencies. Look, 
It happens. It happened in Rome. It happened in medieval Europe. It happened in 20th century Europe. It happens because our institutions are adolescent. They're stuck in a puerile stage of development. They repeatedly promise reform because the people and the obvious awfulness of the situation demand it, but like lazy teenagers, they continue the same behavior that burned the house down and wrecked the car last time and the time before. They haven't got the maturity to address their issues in an honest way. It's a story as old as time. Caveman teenagers were just as bad. It's not the teenager's fault. It's the fact that our institutions must be indulged and endured as if they were recalcitrant puberty sufferers lying for the sake of convenience, just wanting to get high because life in the suburbs is so stultifyingly boring. I was walking up a hill among some trees just after a rain, a bird twittering amid the foliage beside the path, and I had a great sense of being in North America. Remember North America? And of course I was and am in North America, but I had a deep sense of it. And I had just been listening to a podcast about Mary Shelley's novel, Frankenstein, and one scholar had been talking about the landscape descriptions in the novel, the Scottish landscape, the Tyrolean, the Swiss, the Alpine landscapes, how nature was thought of back then, and Rousseau, and the notion of the noble savage, and how the creature was a tabula rasa at birth, but society's intolerance made him a monster. The natural world is conjured up in Chernobyl on HBO. So nostalgic, so bucolic, it all reminds me of the woods around Eastport, Michigan, near Torch Lake, where both M&Ms, Marshall Mathers and Michael Moore, have habitations. Remember M&M? Imagine his nostalgia. Nostalgia for the Detroit of his youth, which was the Detroit of my high school years, which was like the Detroit of today, but with fewer highways, high-end cafes, and combination bicycle, watch, baseball mitt shops. Did Eminem ever go to the cider mill, do you think? Can you picture a young, urban, and white Eminem chilling at the cider mill with his posse, eating a bag of crunchy fried donuts, a brown paper bag stained with donut grease, drinking brown cider out of a styrofoam cup, a water wheel behind him, wheeling water from the Rouge River? I bet he said a lot of stupid things, a whole mess of blarney, as they call it in the Ireland's of someone else's youth. How dizzy. I get from the vapor of nostalgia for the Ireland of someone else's childhood. Just beautiful, all this memory and current existence, this pink slime of time's guts. It was a different world when Aretha Franklin and Muhammad Ali were alive in their 20s and 30s and 40s. It was a different world. There was something to live for, soul, bravery, an end to a racist war. These days, soul is on the market, bravery is scarce, and racist, capitalist, imperialist wars have proven themselves never-ending. Bravery is impossible, there's just no room for it, the spectacle has evolved to devour and assimilate even the most radical gesture, even the community work of Nipsey Hussle is quietly savored and swallowed, melting in the mouth of the beast like a throat lozenge. Not to say we haven't made progress. We're much closer to the world predicted in the movie Soylent Green. Remember that movie? Spoiler alert, it was made out of people. That's where the phrase, Soylent Green is made out of people, comes from. Remember those apocalyptic movies of the late 60s, early 70s? Looking back, how naive, yet how prescient were their predictions of the future. Of course you can't remember the future, you can only remember the past. So the only future I can remember is the one predicted by Rollerball and Soylent Green and Planet of the Apes. That future is all in the past. The very idea that we even have a future is passé. The future itself, the time reached after time has passed beneath our feet, brushed past our cheeks, or streamed through the sky over our heads, is a time whose time has passed. 
The future is a time whose time has passed. The present is all the past was lumbering toward. It's the barrier all our hopes crash into where they pile up in a heap of garbage because they can't go any further. So we should either climb over the rubbish heap of the past into the future or get serious about clearing it away. We can't keep standing here, admiring it, picking out this and that thing we want to salvage, but we're going to. We're going to linger here. Sadly, we must face the fact that the generation that got us to this point is not the generation to lead the way forward. No one over 35 today can see their way out of this wilderness because we're stopped at the barrier. We worship the barrier, we buy and sell the barrier, we set up camp here like Milo Minderbinder or Mother Courage living off the barrier, running our little concessions, this and that, recycled Q-tips, bicycle wheels, reclaimed rags, crackers made of people. I suggest we use a chair as a table, a table as a bed, and a walk-in closet as a gym. Just selling each other the same trash over and over. Wasn't there some rumor that we were in a new millennium? It hasn't taken yet. Clustered around the trash heap of the past, Wheeling and dealing like money changers in the temple. The next generation is here, though. We need to let them pass. At least not prevent them from clearing a path through the accumulation of mistakes and sins and habitual failures. We may be doomed to resurrect our leadership from the graveyard of failure, but there is another generation coming up. The least we could do is put on our hazard lights so they know they can go around, wave them around, go around, go around. Leave us here. We're happy here. You go ahead. We're going to worship some old jackass and keep eating cold leftover french fries out of this to-go container, building our huts of corrugated plastic and plywood. We're used to it. We dug a groove in the album. We're fine. Just leave us here. You go on ahead. Make something of yourselves. Make something besides Soylent Green of yourselves. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more hell, visit thisishell.com. Welcome back. Thank you for that, Jeffrey. Look forward to hearing you live once again and on to other matters. It is now time for me to read the rest of your responses, listeners, to the week's question from hell, which is, what do you dislike most about yourself? What do you dislike most about yourself? So let's see. Where should I start? Let's wrap up the Facebook comments since that's where we left off last time. Anything new in here? Oh, we have one new one. This one coming from John T. Who remarks, The high likelihood that I will have to work until shortly before my death. Oh, I feel you there, John. Hopefully, we won't all be turned into Soylent Green before our time. Over on Twitter, we have four responses, so let's get to it. Gorgeous Greg answers the question, what do you dislike most about yourself? With, I don't listen to each episode, but occasionally unable 
occasionally uninspired. But every time I have said to myself, Self, this sounds dull, maybe I can miss this one, and then gone ahead and listened, I have been glad I did listen. So, not learning to listen always? No one's perfect. Gorgeous Greg, go easy on yourself. But we appreciate your honesty. Hockey Pongo responds, being white and being trash. <laughs> uh, Immortal Tortoise responds, never learned how to build a guillotine. <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, let's see. Evan D responds, I haven't renewed my expired credit card on This Is Hell's Patreon. Lots of listener honesty coming out. Um, oh, Gorgeous Greg also responded to his own tweet saying he searched for white trash emoji and got this and it is a winking smiley face with what appears to be some sort of cowboy hat or Stetson. All right, and what's going on over on Discord? Kim G, always representing on Discord, responds, Extreme laziness. I can't seem to get anything di- <laughs> That's good stuff. Uh, always a strong response from Kim G. Let's see if we have any last-minute Patreon responses. And then I'll have to get down to that really tough call on whose response is my favorite. Uh, there is one more response on Patreon coming from Dean T. That I'm a pokeaholic. <laughs> I don't know if that means you're really into polka. Or if you are a member of the band, the Pocaholics. For those of you not in the know, the Pocaholics are an outstanding and fun Chicago-based uh, polka band, what they call a high-speed collision of polka and rock and roll. They are outstanding. So Dean... I don't know if you're a member of the Pocaholics, but that would be cool if one of their members was a listener of the show. All right. So what are is my favorite response of the week? Let's see. I really dug Craig's snippy response, the rude way I answer questions, you piece of blank. Uh, Kaz made me feel very seen with my ability to stay on one screen long enough to finish writing a thought. By the time I returned to what I was writing, the app has refreshed. Am I my own worst enemy via ADD or via my overdose of inaccessible technology? Yes. <laughs> I like Rob's plea, or rather asking us, is this our audition? to be his new therapist, their new therapist, I should say. Uh, I appreciate over on Twitter, Greg G's honesty about not learning to listen always. 
I really liked over on Facebook, Adam D's head and shoulders, knees and toes, etc. Kelly H with all the bleepity bleeps. But I think this week's strongest response, in my opinion, in my opinion alone, I have all the power this week. I don't have to negotiate with Chuck. I think I have to go with Hockey Pango on Twitter being white and being trash solely because it tickled me. And special mention goes out to Gorgeous Greg's white trash emoji response to that tweet. So congratulations, Hockey Pango. You are the winner of this week's question from hell best answer email us at chuck at this is to claim your prize and remember as winner of this week's question from hell best answer you get your pick of any merch from our website absolutely free so again email chuck at this is to claim your prize stay tuned for next week's question from hell which we will announce to our patreon listeners tomorrow morning at 10 a.m and you can answer the week's question from hell on any of our social media that is facebook twitter and discord as well as on our patreon page speaking of patreon tomorrow's bonus patreon episode exclusive to our generous patreon supporters Thank you all for your support. Uh, the title of tomorrow's bonus episode is The Real Enemy in the Climate Crisis. Features an interview with Bill McKibben from July 21st, 2012, about some frightening numbers about the climate crisis. And he also makes clear about who the real enemies in that crisis are something you don't often hear when people talk about concepts like, I don't know, the Anthropocene and try to lump all of us together as equally culpable in creating this mess. I don't think most of us, certainly living now, but also most people living back in, say, the 19th century, had much control over whether or not we shifted over to fossil fuels. I highly recommend checking out Andreas Malm, his scholarship on all that, specifically his book, Fossil Capital. I know he's been on the show before. Uh, But anyway, tomorrow's Patreon includes an interview with Bill McKibben about the climate crisis. Along with the interview, we'll also hear Chuck's roundup of everything we've learned on the show so far this year. It is truly a hellish collage of information. That's it for me, listeners. I'm Will Ippen, filling in one last time for Chuck Mertz. He will return from vacation on Monday, August 14th. 
He will join, presumably, Kat Jarvanen in the studio and fill us all in on his trip to northern Michigan's lake country. I always look forward to these reports every year, and I imagine many of you do too as well. So, thanks for listening, stay beautiful, and stay tuned. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>